Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine, the purest form of nicotine there is. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1. O-U-T-D-O-O-R and the number one. Lastly, many outdoorsmen are trying to quit tobacco altogether and Fully Loaded Chew may be that first step. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Raley, and this is episode number 13. I know it's whitetail season right now, and I hope you've been getting out into the woods. I've actually only been able to be out twice so far this season. I'm looking to ramp that up here in the next couple of weeks, but uh, man, I've just been so, so busy. Uh, both times, though, that I've been out, I've had deer in bow range, uh, took a shot at a doe, was not actually able to recover her, unfortunately. Uh, when I released my bowstring, caught my face mask. So I'm going to blame it on that. Who knows? It could just be uh, a case of early season doe fever that got me. But uh, yeah, who knows? We looked for her until about 1.30 in the morning. Couldn't find her. Uh, went back. Uh, just just couldn't find, find any more blood. So uh, anyway, but I hope you've had better luck than I have. If you have, feel free. Please do actually tag me in your photos on Instagram. I'd love to see what you guys are knocking down. In today's episode, we are chatting with uh, Bruce Russ, Peter Ziegler, Todd Schaller, and George Ermert from the Wisconsin Waterfowl Association. If you haven't heard of the Wisconsin Waterfowl Association, you need to go check them out. Their website is wisducks.org. That's W-I-S-Ducks.org. Wonderful, wonderful conservation organization here in the state of Wisconsin, focused on waterfowl and Wisconsin's wetlands. Now, if you're an outdoorsman, you know how critical wetlands are to pretty much everything that we enjoy doing, especially if you love to hunt deer in the state of Wisconsin. You know how important the wetlands are. And so the Wisconsin Waterfowl Association is doing a lot, a lot of great work to help educate folks to do habitat work there. Um, yeah, they've just got a whole lot going on. And in this episode, we're going to dive into their mission. We're also going to talk a bit about a preview of the Wisconsin waterfowl season ahead, sort of what these guys are expecting, given some of the minor drought conditions that we've had over the last several months this past summer. So with all of that out of the way, let's get into the conversation with the guys from the Wisconsin Waterfowl Association. All right, joining me on this episode of the podcast are some guys from the Wisconsin Waterfowl Association. How are y'all doing today? Super. Great. Yeah. Thanks for having us on, Josh. Oh, yeah. Thanks for coming on. Uh, as the listeners can probably tell, this is a little bit different than some of the other podcast episodes that I've done. I don't just have one guest. I actually have four guests today. Uh, so looking forward to kind of a panel discussion and running some things by you guys and hearing more about uh, what the Wisconsin Waterfowl Association does here in the state of Wisconsin. But let's just start off with a bit of an introduction. Let's go uh, starting with you, Bruce. Uh, tell me who you are. Tell me what you do with the Wisconsin Waterfowl Association. Yeah, my name is Bruce Ross. I'm the uh, executive director for Wisconsin Waterfowl Association. So that's the, uh, the the leader of the staff, if you will, of WWA. 
Awesome. What how, you said, leader of the staff. What does that staff look like for you guys? Yeah, so we we have a very small staff. Uh, the uh, uh, for a statewide organization, we've got uh, administrative director. We've got uh, a couple of fundraisers, and we have a our habitat coordinator, uh, Peter, who's on this call with us. Uh, and I coordinate between the staff and the volunteer uh, board of WWA. We have a couple of representatives from the board of directors uh, on the call with us today, George Ermert and, and Todd Schaller, who's our vice president. Awesome. Awesome. And so you mentioned volunteers. How many volunteers total are we talking when it comes to your association? Yeah, I'm not sure that we actually have that down to a finite number, but it's certainly in the hundreds uh, uh, scattered around the state, working at a local level from uh, raising funds for WWA to do our work or actually getting their fingernails dirty in the uh, in the marsh doing uh, cleanups or uh, invasives removal or hanging wood duck boxes. Uh, and as well as at the state level, providing guidance to uh, to uh, both me and and doing work uh, uh, with the, uh, uh, in the legislative world or in the education world or in the, uh, the habitat world that, that WWA focuses on. All right, Peter, you're up next. Yeah, I'm Peter Ziegler. I'm the project director for WWA. Um, so that consists of, you know, overseeing our, our habitat projects. Um, that means, you know, we, we get um, requests in via email, phone calls, all sorts of ways. Um, looking at those, reviewing with landowners, trying to get gauge what you know they want to get out of do it, get out of their property for restoring habitat. You know, and working with them to figure out what they want versus regulatory what might happen, and then, or as possible, I should say, from a permit standpoint, and then, you know, helping them. We do the for the projects. You know, we do outright. You know, we do all the design, technical work, permitting for them, for those types of things. Wow. So what what kind of uh, habitat work are we talking about here? I imagine there's probably a lot of regulation that you have to work with, given that you're working with wetlands. Uh, so, so what kind of work are you doing? Yeah. So it's primarily, in, you know, in wetlands, and there's a lot of regulatory work, which is, you know, sometimes that's the biggest benefit we can provide is that technical work to landowners, because they just they don't know where to start or how to get through that a process of permitting with it goes everything from your local municipality to the county to the state to the federal government all have a say in wetlands so you know that can be you know starting out just saying all right what's growing here is it is it native or non-native vegetation and can we put a berm and can we fill in this waterway or not is it a historical stream or is it just a man-made ditch that's draining this wetland that we can you know reflood so it's all those sorts of, you know, technical things you got to look at. Yeah. So you mentioned, and and I don't want to take too much time from other folks, but you mentioned that that big question of the vegetation that you're working with. Is it native or is it invasive? What are some of those, uh, I guess, invasive species that you're seeing that you guys are really having to, to eradicate? Yeah. So the biggest ones we have in the state are hybrid cattail, which is in the southern half of the state. That's pretty much every cattail you see just about, and reed canary grass, which was ironically planted as a forage base historically, but it, it takes over, it's extremely aggressive. Um, so in those areas, you know, you can, you can manipulate some of that for something more diverse and better. And to a lesser degree, but certainly growing quite rapidly across the state is Phragmites. That's that giant reed grass that grows 
10 to 12 feet tall. Um, you see it popping up outside the you know Lake Michigan shoreline now more and more along highways and stuff. All right, Todd, we'll jump to you next. Sure. Um, Todd Schaller. I'm um, on the board of directors for Wisconsin Waterfall Association and also, as Bruce indicated, the vice president. Um, I'm actually new to that role and kind of stepping into the volunteer aspect of the, the association. I've been a, a member for a, a long, long time, but I, I would say a, a paying member, not an active member. And uh, I recently retired after 30 plus years with the Department of Natural Resources and was looking for a way to stay connected to conservation issues and topics. And um, I'm a passionate waterfaller, so this seemed to be the natural fit. Um, and so I pursued that uh, board of directors opportunity and, and just trying to find ways I could become more active within the organization and more involved within the organization versus just uh, you know, a, a paying member. Um, so I'm, I'm new actually to this in this year. Um, 21 was my is my first year on the board. Um, it's been an exciting um, introductory period and kind of learning and growing and understanding, you know, the organization and the function of the organization. But uh, I'm uh, just continually impressed with what this organization does and moves forward with you know, a relatively small group, as, as Bruce indicated, you know, 100, 100-ish volunteers, um, you know, across the state doing a lot of different things and pieces, but, uh, you know, their ability to move the mission forward is impressive, and I'm, I'm glad to be part of it. That's awesome. So you mentioned that this is kind of a new uh, new role for you that you're stepping into. What does that day-to-day kind of look like? You know, day-to-day, it's it's not you know, real, it's not demanding, you know, we, we meet, uh, I think every other month, um, or monthly, probably when you look at committee meetings and things like that. But, you know, to me, it's more about staying plugged into the organization and being aware of what's going on within the organization. And then also being aware of what's going on within the waterfalling community. And, uh, hmm. you know, so you can connect those two dots, um, when the opportunity presents itself. So, um, it's, it's an enjoyable way to be engaged in conservation and, and I enjoy the volunteer aspect of it. All right, George, you're up last but not least. Thank you. Well, uh, I am George Ermert and uh, like Todd, I am also a, a volunteer member of the board of directors. Uh, and like Todd, I'm actually very new to the organization as well. We, Todd and I both joined the board uh, here in 2021-ish. Um, so in addition to serving on the board, I'm also the chair of our uh, membership and marketing committee, which means I kind of oversee our, our outreach efforts to help publicize our, our organization and, you know, get new members, uh, includes our social media efforts. Uh, and then I also help out with our public policy committee. So, and then, you know, when I'm not doing WWA stuff, I do need to, uh, fund my hunting habits. So my, my day job is a, a contract lobbyist here in Wisconsin. So that sounds like there's some pretty direct, uh, direct connection between your day job and what you do uh, for for the organization? There certainly can be. I mean, that is one of the actually reasons I got involved is just in, in my day job, I have been able to work on some great conservation issues. And that is how I met Bruce Ross. Uh, that's how our paths crossed. And uh, I saw WWA a couple of years ago working to get some, some great things done. It was uh, related to the, the state duck stamp. 
And that's what really pushed me to get involved because I wanted to help and I knew that I could. So that was kind of my impetus. Great. Great. Well, we are, uh, depending on where you're at in the state right now, guys, we are, uh, we either have some early seasons that are open and then there's, what is it? The statewide opener this coming weekend. Uh, so I wanted first and foremost to kind of kick it over to y'all and say, okay, y'all is what we say in the South. I don't know if you're used to that. Uh, anyway, so what, what are some of the, the prospects? What's the outlook for the 2021, um, waterfowl season here in Wisconsin? Yeah, I'll start with that. Uh, this is Bruce. Uh, so uh, Wisconsin is a breeding state for waterfowl. So uh, we are actually contributing to the flyway. Ducks are migratory birds and they fly uh, uh, all over the place uh, from, from our northern uh, uh, international border, Canada, all the way down to Mexico. But uh, we are fortunate enough to live in a breeding state and that's important to to uh, the waterfowlers certainly early in the season. So a lot of the birds that are that are being harvested early in the season have in fact been uh, born and bred right here in Wisconsin. Uh, and uh, while the areas west of the state have been experiencing a drought, we've been uh, you know on the on the edge of that drought, uh, but not to the same extent that others have. So so we expect for local birds to be. Uh, uh, pretty much the same as last year, which is the same as the previous year, more or less. Uh, so uh, if you had success last year, you'll see about the same number of birds. Uh, we would expect the wood duck uh, uh, hatch this year was particularly strong. So you'll probably see a lot of wood ducks early in the season. And uh, uh, then as the, as the later season progresses, uh, we'll, we'll probably see a few fewer birds maybe than last year just because of the drought that uh, those migratory birds that are not inside or born in Wisconsin have uh, experienced. So so we expect a good early season and maybe tapering off uh, or at least a little reduction later in the season. Yeah, I would just add that our overall Canada goose population is, you know, 70% above long-term goals and continues to increase. So goose hunting, um, which runs not exactly concurrently with duck, but within that framework um, should be excellent and continue to be excellent. Jesus, 70% above. Yeah. It's, you know, they've almost become a lot more geese residing in the state almost year round. And those are the ones they continue to increase, even though the migratory flock isn't having huge increases. It's the resident geese that are staying more local. Wow. Okay. Bruce and, and Peter touched on the kind of the upcoming season. Maybe we'll just fill in a few blanks as far as, you know, waterfowl hunting in Wisconsin as a whole. So, you know, what Wisconsin is um, probably not a name that comes off the, the tongues of people when they think about waterfowl hunting, they think about, you know, the Dakotas, uh, North and South, you think about Arkansas, but that said, Wisconsin has a, a huge and strong hunting, waterfowl hunting tradition that really kind of parallels its hunting tradition as a whole. But, you know, we have license sales. We have about 70,000 waterfowl hunters in the state of Wisconsin um, who enjoy it at all levels. You know, there might be the, the, the for opening day hunter versus the, you know, the 60 day hunter, but about 70,000. And when you look on the uh, across the United States, we typically rank in the top five 
for license sales for waterfall hunting. And uh, we have a lot to offer. You have the Mississippi River, which is, you know, uh, you know, strongly managed for waterfall by the Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, our other coast is Green Bay and Lake Michigan, which offers, you know, big water or, or uh, big water waterfall hunting. Um, Horicon Marsh is a nationally known um, waterfall destination, uh, Rush Lake, um, Crex Meadows, Mead. I mean, Wisconsin, again, is, is maybe not a, a, a often thought about waterfalling area or destination, but it, it truly offers an awful lot of waterfalling opportunity. Um, and as Bruce indicated, you know, we're a, we're a, a, a production state um, at, the, at the head of the flyway. And uh, so we have that local impact early on with the birds we raise, and then we have the benefit of the birds that migrate through. So um, it is a strong tradition in Wisconsin, which is fun to be part of. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'll, I'll admit to all of our listeners, I am a, a, a total novice when it comes to even thinking about waterfowl hunting. I've never, never really done it before, um, know very little about it. Uh, but one thing that has started to get me interested is just the number of birds that I see in the fall. Um, I'm hunting down in the southern part of the state, primarily a bow hunter for deer. And, uh, man, ducks and geese are everywhere. Um, so, yeah, lots of opportunity for folks. Yeah, and just to, to put a, a sharper edge on, on that, some of the ducks that, that comprise the majority of the harvest here in Wisconsin, mallard is number one on the list. Uh and then closely behind that fall, the blue wing teal, the green wing teal, and the wood duck. So those are what uh, are going to comprise maybe 60% of the, uh, the harvest of Wisconsin waterfowlers. So, uh, but you will also see uh, in, the, in the open waters that Todd described uh, out in Green Bay or Lake Michigan, you'll see uh, scop or uh, uh, you'll see sea ducks, uh, old old squaw or the long-tailed duck, as it's called nowadays. Uh, you might see some, some scoters. So those are typically found on the coast, but because of the open water here on, on Lake Michigan, there's an attraction to those ducks and, the, and they find a food source in the mussels. Or if you go out to the Mississippi, you'll see, or even throughout the state, canvasback ducks uh, and redheads and really the wide variety of, of ducks. And that's part of the appeal of of waterfowling. It's not just the numbers, it's the variety. Yeah. Sounds like some, some pretty great diversity and opportunity there. So how, how do those bag limits work then? I'll, I'll have to confess ignorance on this as well. Are we talking mixed species bag limits or how does that work? Yeah. The, the general limit for ducks is six, the, the total number. And then within that, um, it's based on species and or sex in the case of mallards. So um, it, it can be somewhat complicated it, it requires you know the, the waterfall hunter to do two things one is to to read and understand what the limits are but more importantly to understand and be able to identify birds ideally on the wing so they know prior to shooting that they you know are shooting a, a, a drake mallard and they can have four of them within their six bird limit so um it, it, it has some complexity to it um, and it just requires a little extra focus and concentration by the hunter. But personally, I find that being part of it and, and being, you know, 
honing my skills to be able to identify birds on the wing and, and knowing what I'm shooting prior to the, the, the pull of the trigger. Yeah, and that's complicated a little bit in the early season as well, because uh, the, the birds go through a molt uh, a couple of months ago and they shed their flight feathers. And as they are growing out new feathers, that uh, they don't come in at full coloration. So that those mallard drakes that Todd just mentioned that you can take four of, you know, sometimes they don't look like the uh, classic greenhead that you might see later in the season or further south. So, so that, that part Todd was talking about in terms of identification of the bird on the wing is, is critical and, and is, uh, it, it, it's an acquired skill. It's not something you can look at a book and, and, and make that determination. So part of the fun of waterfowling is, is acquiring that knowledge and that skill that, that allows you to be successful in the field and, and of course, legal. Yeah. Do you guys have recommendations as far as resources? Like I'm, I'm sitting here listening to this and I, and I kind of knew, um, I, I guess about, uh, you know, the, the, the changing coloration and that sort of process, but I'm going to be honest, guys, that sounds super stressful to me. Like, like when I'm out bow hunting, like something walks by and it's got four legs and it's brown and it's shaped like a deer and I can shoot it. Like, that's just generally how it works with a, with a duck. It sounds like you're saying it, it, like there's lots of different options out there. So where, where could I go to, to school myself before I go out and get a ticket? I, think, I mean, there's a lot of resources out there. I mean, the internet is full of a variety of them, you know, different, uh, I know some of the other waterfall organization, Ducks Unlimited. Uh, Delta, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources offers um, some ID um, websites and things like that for folks to go at and, and take a look at. Um, so you, you can get the basics there, but it, as Bruce alluded to, it, it really, it just takes time and practice. And I think a lot of waterfall hunters kind of get mentored into the sport and uh, spend some time with somebody who can maybe help them on that end of it. Um, I, you know, growing up, my that was my father, and as I've grown up, I've taken younger folks out, and uh, you know, you, a lot of conversation about what kind of bird is that, and why do I think it's that type of bird, and so it's it's time of field, it's time of practice, but there are a lot of you know books and online resources that are out there for folks. Yeah, for the eclipse plumage issue, uh, WWA authored an article a couple of years ago that's available on our website. Just uh, search for uh, waterfowl identification and, and it'll pop up. But it, it speaks to those birds that can get you in trouble in the early season because of the, the identification challenges with an eclipse plumage type bird. Uh, but one of the things that uh, was mentioned in that article, and I would recommend to your, especially your new uh, uh, listeners who might be interested in, in waterfowling is to carry a set of binoculars with you out in the field. And so uh, even if the birds aren't coming close enough to decoy or, or uh, you know, take a shot at, then uh, you, you can begin to identify what types of birds they are on the wing, what patterns they fly in, high or low. Do they dart around quickly or do they follow steady courses? Uh, you know, what's the grouping that they're in, that sort of thing. And, and that, all of those are clues to helping you identify the birds on the wing. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like a, a lot more uh, of an engaging way to be involved in the hunt, too, especially if you're sitting there having kind of a slow morning watching birds at a distance. It sure beats doing something <laughs> rather than just waiting. Yeah, absolutely. And part of the part of the fun of waterfowling is 
is, you know, like, like any really outdoor sport. I mean, it's, it's not about just harvesting the bird. It's about the, the totality of the experience in the marsh or, or out on the open water or in the Mississippi or wherever you're, you're partaking in this uh, and, and finding things to keep you engaged and interested and constantly learning is, is really, that's the people, the people who want that are the people who stick with it. So you guys have introduced yourselves to me. We've talked a little bit about sort of the outlook for the 2021 season and waterfowl hunting in general. Uh, give me a a big picture overview of WWA and what you guys are trying to accomplish. Sure. Uh, Wisconsin Waterfowl Association was founded back in 1983 with the idea that the state's waterfowlers did not have a voice in, in the decisions that were be ta being taken about uh, waterfowling legislation or rules. And so uh, founders uh, created this organization based on some other state waterfowling associations. And uh, now 37 years or 38 years later, we're, uh, we're still around. We focus in three particular areas, uh, all surrounding waterfowl. Uh, one is the habitat restoration mission. So we, we look for opportunities to restore wetlands around the state. Uh, you know, Wisconsin has lost over 50% of its historic wetlands uh, since founding. And so you know, that has an impact not only on waterfowl, of course, but the communities around those wetlands and the wildlife that the other wildlife that live in the in those marshes. Uh, our particular focus, Peter can talk more about this uh, in wetlands restoration is on uh, private lands. Uh, we don't exclusively do private lands, but since 75% of Wisconsin wetlands are held in private land hands, uh, if we ignore them, it's to the detriment of the waterfowler and again, those communities around us. So we, we pay some particular attention to that. Uh, and uh, that, so that's one mission, habitat restoration. A second mission would be education. We think that waterfowlers do a lot of good. Uh, George talked earlier about uh, coming on board to help us pass a, some legislation that allowed us to pay more to, to actually duck hunt. So we want, wanted to increase the waterfowl stamp cost because that money goes directly into habitat restoration. We thought that was important that, that we as the users of that resource uh, would pay for it. And you know, well over 85% of our, our members supported that. And so after a 10 year process, George and others uh, helped us get that passed. Uh, so uh, that's, the, that's what we wanna pass to the next generation. Uh, and, and so we have an education mission that, that introduces uh, hunters, young hunters, new hunters to uh, waterfowling, but also, as we talked about earlier, waterfowling is an ongoing self-education or uh, learning experience. And so we try to cater to all aspects of that arc of, of learning that a waterfowler goes through from, you know, how do, we, how do we identify the ducks to how do we restore wetlands? How do we manage our lands to the benefit of, of waterfowling and, and society? So, so how, again, that, that uh, education mission is, is very important to us. And then finally, we I touched about on it a little bit is advocacy. There's a lot of decisions that are being taken in the state, uh, in the Capitol, both on the regulatory side and the legislative side that, that impact waterfowlers. We wanna have a voice uh, to represent the interests of our members and other waterfowlers in the state. So those are our three missions, uh, habitat restoration, 
education of the next generation of waterfowlers and advocacy on behalf of those waterfowlers. You know, I, I would say the only thing I would add is, you know, I don't know Bruce and Todd, but I mean, you know, one big piece of our education is pretty new this year. And that's, uh, you know, we, WWA helped put on the inaugural Waterfowl Hunters Expo uh, in Oshkosh. And this is a, you know, a brand new thing for the state of Wisconsin, for the waterfowl, for people who are interested in it. And uh, Bruce and Todd actually were, were instrumental in making sure that got off the ground this year. Uh, so I don't know if you guys want to talk about that at all. Sure, we sure. Todd, you want to start? Sure. Um, as, as George alluded to, you know, we created um, a collaborative team um, of, of folks from WWA uh, and uh, uh, UW Stevens Point, uh, Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, Ducks Unlimited, Delta, um, a few others who were part of that collaborative effort to kind of. Um, create a Waterfall Hunters Expo, which was the actual name of it, um, which was a one day kind of all waterfalling um, experience. Uh, they could come in and look at vendors who were uh, selling materials. We had uh, speakers throughout the day talking about everything from how to train your dog, how to identify ducks, how to cook ducks, some um, scientists came in and talked about the, the various research that goes on with waterfall and, and uh, not only in Wisconsin, but uh, throughout the flyways. Um, we had a, a youth area, youth zone where, you know, kids can come in and, and uh, you know, touch and feel and be part of that, uh, that experience. We had an area for uh, shooting shotguns, um, archery equipment for youth, pellet guns for youth. Um, it, was, it was a needed event to fill the void. Um, and I think the, the inaugural event and the attendance there indicated it was uh, something that was needed and, and hopefully something we continue to, to build and grow on into the future. It was uh, last August, it was August 28th, uh, last Saturday in August. So it was right prior to the opening of the early goose and the teal season on September 1st. So I think we caught a lot of people um, with the energy of a, of a season coming on and uh, the excitement of that. And uh, I believe we're probably looking at that same timeline uh, for 22. Yeah, and I, I'm really uh, uh, proud of the collaborative aspect of how we put this thing on. WWA would not have been able to do it by itself and in fact did not have to. Uh, we may have had a strong hand in, in leading it, but uh, the organizations Todd mentioned were critical to its success and it was a success. Everybody left with smiles. We're trying to uh, not just engage current waterfowlers, but the next generation of waterfowlers. As I said, it's a, 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 an important mission of ours. And, and that's not necessarily a young hunter. Uh, that may be somebody who doesn't look like the people on this call. That uh, could be, uh, we don't have any women on the call. How do we attract them? And, and uh, persons of color, how do we attract them to this sport so that we can do all of those good things that uh, waterfowlers are able to bring to their, their communities writ large. So we're trying to uh, use this expo as, as now we've gotten it off the ground. How do we leverage it to, to uh, appeal to current waterfowlers and that, that next uh, uh, waterfowler to come along? Uh, 
uh, and, and get them engaged in the sport. So uh, really exciting opportunity uh, with the success in the rear view mirror. How do we build on that is becoming a focus for uh, the, the next year. Yeah, so you mentioned it's a or it was a, a collaborative effort, you know, uh, with some other organizations involved as well. Um, I'm curious to know, though, what makes uh, the Wisconsin Waterfowl Association unique among other conservation groups? So we think about like a Ducks Unlimited or something like that. What makes WWA unique? Well, I think that's a, a great question. Uh, I think to some degree we are we uh, support each other in some ways, such as this uh, Waterfowl Hunters Expo that I talked about. What makes WWA unique is our state focus. So Delta Waterfowl or uh, Ducks Unlimited is really looking uh, internationally. They do a great job here in the state, but also internationally. Uh, but but our focus is exclusively on, on Wisconsin. So the money that we raise here in Wisconsin stays here in Wisconsin. Uh, and and you know, we can speak very strongly about state issues, for example, hunting issues in the capital. And, and there's not really any other organization uh, that's doing that from a waterfowl perspective. Uh, so I think there's, I mean, that just let me be clear on that, though. So uh, we've already talked a little bit about the waterfowl stamp uh, effort to get the uh, price increase uh, on waterfowlers so that we can benefit the habitats in, in the state and in other locations. And that was another collaborative effort. Ducks Unlimited and, and Delta Waterfowl and other organizations around the state helped with that. So uh, there's times when we can come together and then there's times when we are, are something a little bit different. And, uh, and so I, when I came aboard a couple and a half years ago, I, I reached out to those organizations and, and wanted to make sure that WWA had a lane, had a niche, had our, uh, our areas of expertise. When we talked about one of them already was the private lands area. Uh, that as a waterfowling group that we're focused on that and helping uh, address that 75% of wetlands that are in private hands here in the state. Uh, and, and we're also taking aboard other uh, hunting issues and, and such. So I, um, one of the areas that I think, and, and maybe George or, or Todd could, could fill more in here, because we are small, maybe we're more nimble than those larger organizations, and we might be able to provide more opportunities and tailor volunteer opportunities to the unique skill sets and interests of, of the volunteers. So we offer uh, some strong programs to, uh, to get your fingernails dirty in the off season uh, by going out into the marsh and, and, and cleaning it up or uh, helping the DNR with areas where they're underfunding or understaffing doesn't allow them to to take care of the pro some of the properties that they may have, we can help supplement that. But we also, uh, for example, we had a, uh, one of our challenges is identifying new properties uh, to, to do project work on. So uh, if, if we begin to uh, express that need, then people <laughs> raise their hand. We've had some people from who have GIS, uh, Geographic Information System Expertise, uh, raise their hand and say, hey, we might be able to help you identify target-rich opportunities for projects in a particular area. Uh, let us work with you on that. And so we've, we're working with them. We're tailoring our program so that they can, uh, from the sky, maybe help us identify uh, areas that will benefit from our, our uh, habitat work. Database 
development is another area we have a need for recording the work that we've done. So we, we market that a little bit and somebody has database expertise raises their hands and, and, uh, and can help us with that. So really we're able to uh, flex maybe more so because we are smaller uh, to uh, create those unique opportunities. I guess I would add that I think we're the only waterfall conservation group doing the learn to hunts through the, through the sanctioned DNR program um, within the state. And that's not only for youth, but also I believe that it can also be um, older people that are trying to get into the program as well. So that's something I think a little bit unique about Wisconsin waterfall as well. You know, as, as I was going to say, as a volunteer, um, you know, something that drew me to the organization was the opportunities that are available. Um, you know, there are a lot of great uh, NCOs out there, right? I mean, um, Rough Grouse, Delta, Docs Unlimited, um, you know, they're, they're all great and they all are doing great things, right? But sometimes it can be hard uh, to maybe volunteer or do things with them because they're big, right? And their focus is more than Wisconsin. Um, you know, depending on who you ask, when I was either smart enough or dumb enough to, you know, to raise my hand and say that I want to help out, um, there was more than ample opportunity for me. And it's honestly great because sometimes you don't just want to help out at a banquet, right? Sometimes you want to do more than that. Maybe that's not your skill set. Um, that's what I think is great about um, WWA is literally whatever your skill set might be, there's probably a fit for you because uh, we are nimble, right? We're a small group and we, rely, we literally rely on our volunteers to do a lot of the work. And if people weren't stepping up and giving their time and passion for this, WWA would not be doing the good things that they're doing right now. It just wouldn't work that way. So, I mean, not only are there opportunities for volunteers to do great things, but they're truly making the organization move forward. So I think that's what one of the key things for me was. Yeah, I think you're hitting on something there that's super, super important. And that is the, um, not, not to, to, to bash the way fundraising is done and that kind of thing, but, but to do something beyond the fundraising, to do something beyond the banquet, to do something beyond the silent auction. And those things are great and wonderful. And boy, they raise a absolute ton of money, but to go out. And as Bruce said earlier, get dirt under your fingernails and make a difference in your own backyard, so to speak, you know, right here in the state of Wisconsin, I think it's just, it's a huge opportunity for people to be able to uh, do something besides just the funding part and, and to actually be involved, I think, can make us more well-rounded conservationists um, on, a, on a larger scale. Josh, you're absolutely right. We see that as, as a competitive advantage and, frankly, a competitive necessity for us. We, we are never going to raise enough money to have a staff that, that can do all of this. And, and so if we're going to have a bigger impact around the state, it's absolutely dependent on the, uh, the volunteer who sees that opportunity, wants to get some dirt under their fingernails. Or, or you know, in George's case, I mean, to help us uh, in the, in the capital. Uh, George is also our, our Facebook manager. So, I, I mean, both of those things are critical to, to our mission set. Uh, and and I, I gave other examples earlier. If we're going to have an impact around the state, it's absolutely going to be dependent on uh, our volunteers. And that means we need to be sufficiently flexible in how we take advantage of those opportunities when people raise their hand. 
to to make a difference for the waterfowl in their state. Yeah, yeah. So what what I want to do now is thank you guys for for the sort of big picture overview. Um, what I want to do now is maybe drill in just a little bit more, and and I know each of you are involved in different areas, so feel free to speak up uh, on sort of your specific area. But I want to hear about some of your current initiatives, like the things you're currently working on right now when it comes to your mission with habitat restoration, uh, education, and advocacy. So maybe we just take one at a time. So starting with habitat restoration, you've told me some some good stuff so far, especially with the focus on private lands. You know, I, I think about the the correlation between what you're saying and um, a lot of the talk about uh, wild turkey populations in decline right now. And there's all this clamor about, you know, the DNR needs to do that and the DNR needs to do this. And the reality is the majority of birds live on private land. It's just the truth of it. And so we're holding the DNR accountable for something that begins with with individuals, right? With, with, with people. And we're hoping that they will fix the problem. So when I hear that you guys focus on doing private land stuff, it's like, man, that's, that's great. That's wonderful. So tell me a little bit about what that looks like and maybe what are some of the big projects you guys either uh, have just finished, maybe you've got going on right now, maybe they're coming up in the future. Sure. I can start with that. Uh, The uh, WWA over the past uh, couple of years, actually probably three or four years helped uh, along with other organizations, help the DNR develop a waterfowl management plan. And, and a lot of plans just uh, get developed and sit on the shelf. This one, I think, has the opportunity to be a, a real driver of initiatives. So uh, WWA had a hand in developing that. Of course, private lands is, is a component of that. But uh, we are also now moving into the cycle of how do we uh, contribute energy to that plan and how do we help hold the DNR accountable for, for uh, following through on what they said. So that's, that's policy type work, but it touches on, on, uh, on habitat. Uh, one of the challenges I mentioned before was identifying uh, new, new project opportunities. So private lands uh, is our focus. How do we reach out to, you know, WWA is a relatively small organization with a a non-existent marketing budget. So how do we reach out to those uh, organizations or those individuals rather who, who might have properties that are good candidates for the type of work that we can we can help them with? Uh, and, and this ties right back into the last conversation on volunteers. So we have a, uh, uh, we've developed over the course of the past year, a strong habitat committee that's uh, looking at these various initiatives that, that we'll talk about. One of them is uh, this idea of creating a drumbeat of information out to landowners or organizations that have private lands that are not open to the public uh, and, and getting the word out to them. So the Habitat Committee oversees a, a person and we're trying to expand that to, to look at um, creating that information flow out to those groups. Uh, and we need more people, like frankly, because one, one or two people can only cover so much of the state. We're looking to expand that. Uh, another example would be uh, in that same vein would be wild rice uh, restoration opportunities. So uh, that's one thing that we we have done for I don't know Peter uh, could tell me tell you better, but you know for decades. Uh, how, how do we identify those candidates uh, that might benefit from wild rice restoration 
uh, more methodically. We do the scale, the scale of the projects that we do are relatively small in acreage numbers. So that means if you want to have an impact across the state, you have to do them in greater volume. So we're all about trying to grow that volume of, of projects that come into our, our uh, habitat queue. And with that, I'll ask Peter for his thoughts. Yeah, I mean, the habitat program, I mean, so the money we raise, we also try to double that. So part of my job also is I, I write grants to state, federal, and private foundations and things to double that money that we're raising. And that's the money that we really are utilizing to help cost share on these, these landowners' restorations. So yeah, we'll do, we'll almost always do the technical work where we can, um, which is a a couple a few thousand dollars of value if you were to hire a consultant. There's a real benefit there. But we also provide cost share for on the ground excavation when that, you know, you get to that point. And that's huge benefit to, to getting some of these projects off the ground because really our goal is we want to you know, restore as much wetland habitat, waterfall habitat we can. And so that helps motivate some of these people to get to that point. I mean, we, so, I mean, we have, I have nine projects sitting there with permits right now, ready to go. And we have, you know, another couple that um, are in the works as well as we have multiple, but I'm still sitting here looking at a list that we have, you know, 15 projects that we, you know, we've got inquiries on. Um, that we need to look at and do a little further investigation to see if they're worthwhile to meet our program goals. We can't do every project we get. Um, you know, they have to meet some criteria. Um, and so that's kind of how we narrow things down a little. But when I'm going back to that technical side is, you know, we always try to help people, even if it's the simplest project, um, it might not meet our criteria for our cost share. We also, we usually try to help them at least with the technical, get through the permit process so they can at least get that on the ground. Yes. What what is some of that criteria? Like maybe there's somebody listening to this. It's like, hey, I've got a I've got a piece of land, you know, and I'm I'm curious what 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 I could do here with this. Uh, what are some of those criteria? Yeah. So really, we're looking for um, things that have been hydrologically altered. So when I say that, I mean, you know, wetlands that have been drained, either a ditch, drain tiles, you know, um, berms. I say berms, but you know. Topographically, things have been manipulated to drain water off the landscape historically. Those are the those are the most promising and have the best bang for the buck in terms of restoration and getting water back on the ground and habitat in general. Um, you know, there's also things where you have low areas that are wet and they're just dominated by cattail or reed canary grass. There's no open water, but you know that if you just put a wildlife scrape in there, which is basically a shallow pond. Um, you could get some open water habitat, which would diversify that. And we get a lot of those requests. Those are less, um, what I want to say, intriguing to us because the cost per dollar is, is very high on something like that. But we see the benefit. And so we will always help people get through that and through that process. But I also say it's worthwhile to have yeah, you know, professional come out and look at it. Like we almost, I look at almost all the projects we that come through our our system, whether it's phone calls, emails, Facebook, whatever it may be, because you'd be amazed how many scrape quote wildlife ponds I've gone to look at and found something else, some hydrological drainage feature that actually can make it viable for our program. When you know the average person isn't won't identify that or won't see that necessarily. 
Hmm. You, you've mentioned a couple of different times re- restoring some diversity there, and that that's a topic that comes up in managing pretty much any wildlife, whether you're talking about deer, turkeys, grouse, whatever it is, that, that diversity piece. So what are, what are some of the, um, I guess the, the markers of an, of a good diverse, uh, habitat for, for waterfowl? I mean, ideally waterfowl, like a 50% open water, 50% emergent vegetation. So I think if you're looking across, you know, body water and it's not like it's a mosaic, you know, so you might have, if you're looking across the five acre wetland, you might have half an acre open water and three quarters acre of, you know, bulrush, smartweed, some cattails, and then another acre over here of open water. And it just kind of spread around. That's ideal. I mean, most puddle ducks in the state, which are probably primary interest of most waterfowlers, um, unless they're open water hunting, um, they average, you know, they want two to six inches of water, ideally. And that's where you get a lot of um, plant growth, emergent stuff, and a little bit of submergent. But, you know, that's why you see a real big use in newly flooded fields, especially in spring, because there's, um, think of those low areas, they've grown grass and seeds, and there's a bunch of seeds sitting in there all summer, and then they flood in winter when we get, you know, kind of our recharge rains in general. That's one of the biggest draws of why you see ducks flocking to those types of areas. So, you know, the diversity is increasing it from a monoculture recanary grass, which is one species and has very little wildlife value in general, to, you know, a wetland that could host typically, you know, up to 100 or so species, but normally you're more in the 10 to 20 range on average. But all those species are producing seeds at different times of the year. Um, they're maturing at different times, which makes that wetland more viable for a longer period for, for birds. And Josh, if, if I can, I, before we get away from habitat, I just wanted to mention that uh, WWA has probably been the biggest provider of, of wood duck boxes, cavity nesting uh, boxes in the state over the years. Uh, we've been responsible for thousands of wood duck boxes uh, being put up uh, and, and tying that into a back to our discussion on volunteers and scratching the itch that they particularly want to to fulfill that program is essentially run by volunteers the logistics of it and, and some some of the boxes we sell we sell but we also provide those boxes to our volunteers to put up in their their neighborhood or their backyard or in a, a, a state area right now we have a project that's just been launched a uh, the white river area a a lot of trees have been harvested by the dnr that uh, removes to the cavities. There's a lot of wood ducks historically up in that area. So one of our volunteers said, hey, I want to do a project up here, help replace some of those cavities that have been lost. Uh, will you support me, WWA, in, in uh, getting boxes and helping us through the permitting? And, and, uh, and then we'll monitor the, the wood duck boxes over the years. Uh, and oh, by the way, we'll help you develop a tracking system uh, to, to monitor our success in wood duck hatches throughout the, the state and throughout the years. So, uh, so that's another piece of our habitat mission that, that uh, maybe wasn't mentioned earlier because we, we, we get focused on, on projects very quickly, but there's, there's a lot out there that you can play a difference in that if you're interested in, in that role. Yeah, it's really great to hear too about how, um, how you guys sort of have volunteers who approach you and you have the I guess the trust in them to let them run with with uh, 
big projects like that one. Yeah. And, and as I said, if we're going to have a bigger impact in the state, we need uh, more feet on the ground. And that the only way we're going to get there is through volunteers. And, and we means we have to work closely with them to make sure that uh, that that trust is fulfilled. But uh, uh, we haven't really been, I haven't been disappointed so far. I think one thing from a volunteer perspective, the Wood Duck Project is a, is a good example is there's there's a feeling of reward in the, in that type of project because, you know, you go out and you put it on your wetland or maybe you take your kids with you and you put it on your wetland and, you know, through the ice, usually February and March, and you either go back to that wetland in the spring or summer and now you see wood ducks on the pond. Maybe your wood duck house did or didn't have that benefit, but that, that feels good to people. And then you go back maybe in the spring to clean it out and to kind of reestablish it for the upcoming season. Um, and now you do find that there was a nest there and there was, you know, egg, egg remnants there. So, you know, I think that from a volunteer perspective, that, that really feels good and, and neat. And particularly if you're, you're new to it or a young hunter um, or a young conservationist, that's a, that's a very rewarding, um, you know, benefit to, to the program. Yeah. And as, as a dad of three young kids, like that's something that grabs my attention too. like hearing, man, you take your kids out on something like this and man, when they have those experiences, when they're young, they're hooked, you know, that's, that's, those are those memory making opportunities that create conservationists for life now. And that's going to be an important thing for them on into the future. Yeah. And I mean, to give you an example, I, you know, we gave a guy 10 wood duck houses to put up and, you know, he was someone who's very methodical, cleans them out, checks them. He emailed me pictures. He goes, hey, this works great. You take a selfie stick, put your phone in the hole, and you get a picture of the duck in there for his kids, you know. But, he, yeah, he comes back in spring here and tells me, um, I think his wife said, oh, you just put those up so you can shoot, shoot more ducks. He goes, look, I shot two wood ducks this fall, but I produced 82 wood ducks. So it just gives you an, a really good sense of the impact one person is having with 10 wood duck houses, you know, and he was tracking it. So that's amazing. Well, let's, let's shift gears a little bit. So we've talked about the habitat restoration piece. Let's talk about the education piece. And I'm especially intrigued uh, about something you guys mentioned earlier. Uh, the, um, the, was it like a mentored hunt or, or involving new hunters, something you're doing in association with the DNR? Yeah, I, I saw. So I'll talk to that initially. Maybe Todd, you could you could jump in there a little bit too. Uh, but uh, the the DNR has a program uh, across really all uh, hunted species uh, called Learn Hunt that they do in turkeys and deer and and there's a a a tried and tested and true uh, process that they encourage you to go through so that you're not making it up uh, by yourself. You have you you help create ethical and safe hunters uh, after the program. So, uh, you know, our, our longest standing program uh, re locally or regionally uh, is our Green Bay Learn to Hunt. I think they're celebrating their 11th year. Uh, so they've put uh, anywhere between uh, 10 and 14 new hunters out there on the, on the landscape uh, each and every year. So, you know, 150 waterfowlers maybe, uh, you know, can point to their, their, experiences in, in that learn to hunt. 
So uh, we, we have that, that knowledge, we have that expertise, we're trying to grow that capacity throughout the state, another volunteer opportunity. Uh, it does require uh, that program, uh, and it requires you to find those mentors who after the, the uh, Learn to Hunt program, uh, will be able to take those, those new waterfowlers out to hopefully a successful and, and fun and rewarding and continue to be engaged sort of hunt. So. Um, yeah, so that's, that, that's a great program. And again, if, if people are interested, we are uh, looking to expand that program. We bring expertise and connections and the, and the lessons plans. So if people are, are interested, what, how should they reach out to you? Well, I think uh, the easiest way for any of the things we're talking about is to go to our website, wisducks.org, W-I-S-D-U-C-K-S.org and uh, search for what you're interested in. If you're interested in projects, uh, promoting a project to us, then there's a form for that. If you're interested in uh, becoming a volunteer of any sort, whether it's uh, learn to hunt or uh, working with a local chapter or helping us with our database or whatever, uh, there's a form for that too. And I personally get each one of those uh, forms that get submitted and I respond to, you know, I reach out to everybody who has uh, provided that that connection or that interest. Awesome. Any, anything else we want to cover on the education front? Yeah, I could just speak a little bit more about that expo. Uh, and again, connecting it back to volunteers. Uh, you know, Todd, who's on this call, was our volunteer coordinator. Todd uh, had to have over 100 volunteers to help put this this event on. We're always looking for that volunteer to help us now, especially as we're starting into our second year with the expo. We're looking for, for more help there. It's a neat thing to get involved in. Uh, and again, it's for all things waterfowl. If it, Hopefully a, a new waterfowler can come into that expo and see ahead of him or her uh, if they if they want to train dogs, there's a way to do that. There's an avenue in in this expo to to see that in place, and maybe that's something they pursue moving forward. Or carving decoys, or I as as Todd said, you know, identifying decoys or uh, uh, ducks, and then uh, maybe moving on to a a mentored hunt. That's kind of our next step in this. Is how do we how do we take that expo and turn it into a hunting experience for those people who uh, may be new to the activity. So uh, we can use volunteers for all aspects of that. And, and it's a way to see the expo for free. You get a hat out of it and, uh, and, and maybe some other benefits of connecting with fellow waterfowlers. I think one other area of education is we, you know, we, I think an informed hunter or an informed conservationist is a, is a, is a, a good hunter and conservationist. So we, we look for opportunities primarily through our newsletter and, and a little bit through social media to you know educate and, and inform our membership um, or beyond. Uh, we recently have um, kind of putting the final touches on a, a five or six uh, article series on hunting sandhill cranes. And uh, in a nutshell, and. 2010, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service said the Mississippi Flyway would be authorized to have a sandhill crane season within the states. And a few states have participated in that in the flyway, Wisconsin has not. And I think um, the association as a whole, you know, supports the concept of a sandhill crane season. But I think we also recognize there was a lot of 
misinformation, confusion about what it is and what it isn't. And uh, so we put together a series to kind of touch on the, the, the points of a sandhill crane hunt, what has to happen, what could it look like, who benefits from it, those type of things. Um, we also look for opportunities if, you know, there's new rules and regulations um, that come out. Uh, we work with the department, uh, the, the uh, Division of Law Enforcement provides a monthly or every other month uh, article within our newsletter on law enforcement topics. And oftentimes that's informing um, the, the readers on new rules or regulations. So it's, you know, the, the expo was a component, the mentored learn to hunt program, but just basic information and education is another element of that, that category or that, that part of our mission. So I want to poke into that, uh, that Sandhill Crane hunting season possibility there just a little bit because I've, you know, I'm pretty new to the state. Uh, my home state of Alabama has opened up a Sandhill Crane hunting season. Uh, that was something I never heard. I didn't even know the bird existed until five years ago. And now they've got a hunting season for it. So is that something that you guys see as a legitimate possibility? I've had a couple of conversations with guys as we've talked about the rumors and sort of the consensus has been, yeah, but it'll never really happen. I'll just speak and I'll let Bruce step on it from there is biologically, um, it, it certainly is a viable hunting opportunity. Um, historically, it has been a hunting opportunity, um, you know, in the 1800s and early 1900s, there was a hunted species and much to the demise, hunting probably was a part of it, you know, decline in population, um, along with habitat and things like that. Um, Obviously, it's you know recovered um, to the point where the, the Fish and Wildlife Services, who manages migratory birds, sandhill cranes being one of them, on a on an international basis, you know, not just Wisconsin, not just United States, but Canada down to Mexico and Central America, say the numbers are such that they can um, you know sustain a hunting season. And 18 states and four providences currently do so. Biologically, absolutely. Um, maybe Bruce wants to touch on the social side of it. Yeah. <laughs> Leave the fun stuff for him, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's a magnificent bird, right? And so that creates yeah. a lot of energy uh, in, in support of that, that bird. And non-hunters may not appreciate that, that uh, hunters care about the species that they hunt. That uh, if, if you look at... Um, and so there's an education component to that as well. So one, one factoid in that is that there was a recent 50-year uh, meta study that looked at all North American birds, uh, and we've lost 3 billion birds across the continent of all types uh, in the last 50 years, with one uh, significant exception, and that's waterfowl. Waterfowl have increased during that same period 56%. So, you know, you, you got to ask yourself why. And, and so it, I, I think a large part of it comes to the, the idea that waterfowlers care about the species they hunt. They reach deeper into their pockets. They go out into their backyards. They hang wood duck boxes. They get their fingernails dirty. Recurring theme here that they care about that. Uh, and and uh, they waterfowl fall under a management program that that monitors on a uh, on a uh, annual basis the populations the breeding success uh, and establishes uh, harvest quotas based on that that scientific data uh, that same uh, mindset 
I think can and should be applied to uh, the Sandhill crane. Uh, so, so I think Wisconsin's a little bit different and part of the series that Todd uh, led the charge on and was the primary author on that, that he described earlier, uh, you know, helped expose or explain why, why Wisconsin Sandhill cranes are maybe different. A hunting season in, in that state is different maybe than Alabama. Uh, because it's a, again, it's a breeding state. And so uh, that Eastern population of Sandhill cranes, which we're talking about, which is at 90,000 uh, plus population right now and, and skyrocketing, growing uh, not quite exponentially, but pretty close to that on an annual basis. Uh, that's having an impact on our farmers. And that's leading to a, uh, an interest from the farmer's perspective in how do we control this? Uh, and, and while a hunting season won't necessarily help them directly, uh, it may do some other things for them. So I think they will be interested in, in, in uh, uh, initiating the discussion on the legislation that's required to turn this into a, uh, an actuality here in the state of Wisconsin. So I, I think we'll see some movement on that in the not too distant future, but it will bring out um, a lot of uh passion on both sides of the question, right? You think of, of the wolf hunt and all of the uh, issues that have come up around that over the course of the past year and a half. And, and uh, you know, the Sandhill crane is different, but again, uh, passion for the animal. The dove hunt going back 20 some odd years ago was a big deal here in Wisconsin that brought out uh, uh, the passionate supporters on both sides of the issue. So I think if, if there is a Sandhill crane hunt proposed, then we'll see that sort of energy in the debate. I, I, if, if I can just go on, I think, you know, looking at those two examples, the wolf hunt and the, uh, the uh, morning dove hunt of a couple of decades ago, I think that pits hunting conservationists against non-hunting conservationists. And I think that's a waste of energy. So, so that's part of why we started this, uh, this series of educational uh, articles on the Sandhill crane so that so that we could get some facts out on the table to help inform that debate in a more uh, rational way than just emotion. And, and so uh, I think it would also be important to get the, the various organizations that fall on either side of that issue around the table to talk about what are the hard points that need to be addressed in, in any legislation that would come forward. So, so WWA would be a proponent of that sort of approach to to establishing what we, we think of as a sustainable and ethical Sandhill crane hunt in Wisconsin. Yeah, I think, uh, so you mentioned the the um, the population of Sandhill cranes right now in Wisconsin, roughly 90, or, or east, eastern Sandhill cranes, 90,000. I live in the southern part of Wisconsin, south of Madison, and I think 87,000 of them must be here. Because uh, I look out at the fields, man, and it is it has been intense here lately. Uh, you know, look out and see 30 40 plus cranes in one field. I mean, those are, they're like dinosaurs standing out in the field. I mean, they're gigantic. Yeah, they, they are really a, an impressive creature uh, and they are not quite, but pretty close to prehistoric in origin. So uh, you're not far off with the dinosaur reference, uh, which, which kind of shows that, that they're, they're very uh, flexible in their survival strategy. So uh, here they've adapted, much like the uh, Canadian goose, which only a few years ago was at some risk and now is everywhere and frankly a nuisance in, in urban areas. 
uh, we see that same thing beginning to happen with sandhill cranes. So they're uh, moving out of their traditional wetland uh, areas uh, because all of the prime breeding habitat has been taken up. And so, yeah, as the population continues to grow, they move into more marginal uh, breeding habitat or they, they move to other areas. There are roving bands of uh, sexually mature but not paired up sandhill cranes uh, because there's not good habitat for them. They kind of rove around and, and uh, we think are responsible for the majority of damage uh, that are done to cornfields. But yeah, everybody is seeing them. A few years ago, that wasn't the case. Now, as your experience says, Josh, uh, they're, they're just about everywhere. Yep. Well, let's, let's pivot uh, one more time here. And I think the Sandhill Crane probably provides a good opportunity for this segue. Let's jump over to the final piece of the mission of WWA, and that is advocacy, talking about regulation, talking about legislation. What are some of the things that you guys have got going on right now, some of the, the uh, efforts that you're working towards? Well, uh, we, we've already talked about the Sandhill Crane Hunt. You're right. It's a great segue uh, because that is an area where we are, are trying to inform a uh, future discussion on, on legislation. And uh, so that's, that's an effort. Uh, we talked a little bit about the, uh, the, the stamp effort uh, that, that we had some success after 10 long years of trying to, to increase the fee that we paid uh, in order to be able to hunt waterfowl, we were able to get that through the uh, the budget this past year. Uh, in in large part, not in large part, but in significant part, to uh, George's insights and and help in the, at the capital level, uh, and and you know that again that unified voice for for uh, interested waterfowlers that brought all those organizations together that were important uh, to to getting that done. Uh, so so now we're in the in the mode of. Uh, and there's additional funds coming in. Where do those funds get spent? How do we how do we make sure that they're being targeted towards the the areas of greatest need? Uh, and WWA sits on a a migratory game bird committee that that is hosted by the DNR along with other organizations to help target those funds. So that's that's that bridges the gap really between habitat and uh, and advocacy. Um, so. Uh, I don't know, uh, George, any other insights that you'd want to bring out? You know, I, I would just kind of add on the, on the advocacy front. I mean, the, um, I think the duck stamp increase is a great example. Again, this wasn't a, a huge increase. I mean, this was a whopping uh, $5 that is being added to the state duck stamp that every water follower has to purchase. And After all, 10 years, right? What's that? I said after 10 years, right? Like no, five it, bucks. They've been trying to increase it for 10 years, but it actually hadn't been raised wow. in 1997. That fee had been in place since 1997. I'd say so, the value of a dollar has changed a little bit it, since then. It's it's a lot more expensive to move dirt uh, here in 2021 than it was in 1997, right? Yeah. Um, but I think that shows kind of, um, you know, why groups like WWA exist. Um because if it wasn't for the work of WWA and Ducks Unlimited and Delta and the Wisconsin Conservation Congress and the Wisconsin Wildlife Federation, um, this wouldn't have gotten done, right? Uh, it takes all efforts uh, to move these things. And it's, it's just super important because, you know, and this is when we talk about, well, why would you want to get involved with WWA, right? What's, why would someone want to do it? Well, here's another great example. I mean, advocacy, right? You could be passionate about this. 
you might even know your lawmaker, right? And to have an individual uh, hunter um, reach out to their lawmaker about an issue, whether that be a duck stamp increase or another issue dealing with public lands or public access, um, it goes a long way. And that is one of the reasons, I mean, again, WA was founded on this issue for advocacy, right? They wanted to be the voice of waterfowlers here in Wisconsin. Uh, and I think that's just one more way we're able to continue that tradition today. Yeah, George, I think you touched on something that's super important there. So people who who maybe aren't waterfowlers should care about waterfowl-related issues in the state of Wisconsin, right? Like they conservation as a whole that affects every species specifically when you start talking wetlands i mean the 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 ramifications of the health of our wetlands is is far far reaching well beyond uh simply just waterfowl and and wildlife well uh you know guys i i really appreciate your time together today is there anything else that you were hoping to bring up that we just didn't quite get around to or any last words you want to leave us with Josh, I would just uh, just to piggyback on your last point that that uh, wetlands are more important uh, than just for waterfowl. Uh, there are organizations WWA is a part of, uh, particularly one called the Sportsman uh, Sporting Coalition for Wetlands, uh, that was formed when there was a threat to wetlands uh, four or five years ago in the legislature. And just like uh, individual members have a louder voice for an organization like WWA, organizations like WWA have a louder voice if they band together. And so George gave a couple of examples of that. Uh, the Sporting Coalition for Wetlands uh, looks at all things and informs all of these organizations that are part of it of all things wetlands. So uh, whether that's from a uh, community flooding or clean water or uh, uh, a wildlife perspective. There's a lot of benefits that come through that. And that's why organizations and individuals who are not waterfowlers should be concerned about it. I mean, if you're going to uh, harvest a big buck, uh, you know, you're going to find a bunch of them in a swamp, right? They're hard to get to, but uh, they they find protection and, and sustenance in that swamp. So, um, you know, it, it really goes across uh, species that are harvested or communities. So, Thanks for that opportunity. And Josh, I would just add, you know, I mean, I think this whole conversation we've had has been great, right? And I think it highlights the importance of what nonprofit conservation organizations are doing in Wisconsin. You know, so for your listeners out there, if you're a hunter, or even if you're a non-hunter and you're just into conservation and you're listening, I mean, I think this shows why you should be a member of an organization like this, because there are great organizations out there, you know, beyond WWA, they are all doing wonderful things. Um, it, it's absolutely true. But without these organizations, these great things wouldn't happen. So, I mean, our State Department of Natural Resources is doing fantastic work, right? But they can only do so much. Look at all the great things that are getting done because of the nonprofit conservation organizations. Um, and, you know, without that, we would be so far back. So if you're, if for your listeners out there, if you're not a member of a, a nonprofit conservation group, go and join one because that 25, 35 bucks that you pay to join, it goes a long way and you never know what kind of interest that'll be to you. So I would just tell your listeners, I mean, if you're not a member already, get out and join one because it really, it pays dividends. Yep. Get out and join one. And I would highly recommend the Wisconsin Waterfowl Association as one of them, because you know, your money's staying right here in the state of Wisconsin. Your volunteer efforts are right here. Uh, and you can see the benefits that you are working towards by being part of this organization 
right outside your back door, you see it all around you. Um, which again, I think is one of the tremendous strengths uh, of you guys being a, a local organization. All right, so hopefully we are coming to the end of this conversation and we have inspired folks. Hopefully people are, are fired up, not just about waterfowl hunting, but also waterfowl conservation and everything you guys are doing. Hopefully people are saying, I want more, I want to learn more, I want to know more about WWA. Where do they need to go for that? So I will say, Josh, uh, for your listeners out there, just head to our website, www.wisducks.org or our Facebook page as well. Uh, you can search us on Facebook for, under Wisconsin Waterfowl Association. That will get you uh, all the information that you need to uh, join, become a member, and do even more. All right, great. Well, thanks a lot, you guys. I appreciate your time, and uh, maybe looking forward to having some of you on again to talk about how your uh, 2021 waterfowl season went. That'd be great. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much to Bruce, Peter, Todd, and George for giving me their time. I hope you enjoyed this. Head over and and check out what the uh, Wisconsin Waterfowl Association is up to on their website. Uh, again, great organization. I can't say enough good things about these guys. Um, before we sign off, though, I do want to say if you're getting out in the woods, good luck. I wish you the best. I hope you guys are knocking them down. Whatever you're doing over these next couple of weeks, make sure that you're getting outside and enjoying the resource that is ours as Wisconsin sportsmen. Mm-hmm.